Oh, Father, we pray that you would give us your spirit as you gave us as you gave your spirit to your apostle, so that we might hear the words that you want to speak to us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Single, married, divorced, in a relationship. It's complicated. Just um, five, uh, five of the 11 different options available on Facebook's relationship status drop-down menu. Which would you choose if you were to open an account today? Are you happy with your status? Or would you change it tomorrow if you could? Issues of status dominate the world we live in. Our gender, sexuality, race, our marital status, even our vaccine status has become a key part of defining who we are. And sometimes these things get combined. So just this week, I heard the news that dating apps are offering in-app bonuses to people who are vaccinated. Who would have thought a year or so ago that vaccines could be so sexy? How should a Christian think about their relationship status? What difference does following Jesus make about decisions about marriage or singleness? Now, I approach this subject today with a degree of trepidation because it is a very personal subject for people. And I'm aware that it's been a big and sometimes difficult question in our church since long before I arrived. And yet I'm also encouraged as we come to God's word because God is not silent on this issue. The Corinthians, in some ways, were just like us. They had questions about marriage and singleness too. Some of them were engaged, others divorced, some widowed. Still others would have said, it's complicated. Some had things really clear in their heads, and others were confused and hurting. And throughout this chapter, Paul speaks to them as a pastor who loves his people a lot. He's passionate about what is good for them. And so perhaps, so as we come to consider singleness, from perhaps the single most detailed treatment of it in the whole Bible, we'll do well to remember God's love and grace towards us. And as Paul says, partway through the passage in verse 25, he says, I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So he speaks as the Lord's spokesperson. And so the words he speaks are true. God doesn't leave us in the dark, but he shines his merciful light into our lives. And at the same time, these words are not simply about singleness. They're certainly not a self-help guide to the single Christian, uh, nor an unpleasant medicine that God expects the single person to swallow. Much more deeply, these verses speak about how the gospel transforms the status of every Christian. And so today, even if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this passage opens a window onto the type of life he invites all of us to live. A life in which he offers us a status that the world can't touch and that which lasts for all eternity. Let's begin with the first of uh, three lessons. This is the longest one. God's salvation call should transform what we think about status. Some of the married people in Corinth thought that it was more spiritual to become celibate and others wondered if they should divorce their non-Christian spouses. Paul argued against those misunderstandings 
um, earlier on in the chapter, and we looked at that about uh, three weeks ago. And then in, in verses 17 to 24, which is the kind of central point of the whole chapter, he gives one big theological reason to back up those earlier arguments. And at the same time, this central paragraph points the way forward to what he's got to say about people who are not married in the second half of the chapter. And his guiding principle is simple. God's call to save us transforms what the Christian life is all about. Paul says the same thing three times. You see verse 17? Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. Or verse 20, each person should remain in the situation or literally calling they were in when God called them. Or verse 24, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now Paul isn't talking here about the call to be married or the call to be single. He's not using the word as we sometimes use it. You know, I felt called to become an architect. Or I felt called to start a family. I felt called to live in Wandsworth. Or I felt called to start a new career. Now, God is, uh, Paul is describing God's call to save us. Do you remember, just as he described the Corinthians at the very beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 2, he said they were sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. So salvation is the fundamental call on the Christian person's life. It transforms what life is all about. And that is why Paul can counsel the Corinthians to, verse 17, live as believers regardless of their circumstances. Or verses 20 and 24, remain as they are. He's not saying that a Christian can never change their situation in life. But he is saying that they do not have to simply because they've become a Christian. So if anyone in Corinth is telling other people to change their, that changing their status somehow would make them more spiritual, Paul says, don't be ridiculous. Our status as saved people is more significant than anything else. And then Paul presses that point home with two illustrations from everyday life. Verse 18. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? he should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Uh, earlier this year, there were 55 different ethnicities to choose from on the 2021 census. So the ancient world was divided into just two ethnic groups, Jew and Gentile. And both were there in this church in Corinth, and Paul says there is no need for either of them to change their ethnic status. So a circumcised Jewish believer doesn't need to become an uncircumcised Gentile. Apparently that was medically possible, but let's leave that thought there for a moment. Similarly, there was no question of requiring uncircumcised Gentiles to become Jewish. Just read the letter of Galatians. Now here's an extraordinary thing. Circumcision had been the pride and joy of Jews for millennia. And yet Paul makes this extraordinary claim, verse 19, it's nothing. Your ethnicity is nothing. Now wouldn't we have to search far and wide today to hear that sentiment, that someone's race or ethnicity is basically unimportant to God? But Paul can make the point because he knows what really matters. Verse 19, keeping God's commands is what counts. 
Uh, two members of our family received their new blue British passports this week. But you see, God's call to save us, which leads to living with Jesus as Lord, obeying his commandments, is, much, is a much bigger deal than the color of someone's passport or even the color of their skin. Salvation is what life is all about. And the same idea comes in Paul's next illustration, although with a subtle difference. Verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. How can Paul say to a slave, don't worry about it? When slavery basically meant that you weren't even a human being, you were a living tool. You weren't even allowed to get married. Well, for a start, he, we, should, we should see that he clearly sees freedom as a better human condition than slavery. Verse 21, he says, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So a Christian slave can seize the opportunity to be free if it comes along. In other words, Paul is saying there are exceptions to the rule, remain as you are. And we're going to see that later when it comes to the rule, uh, to the relationship status of a single person. But perhaps more importantly, a person's saved status in Christ is much more important than where they stand on the social ladder. Verse 22. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Now, one of my favorite board games as a child was this game, the game of life. I'm sure many of us here played that. Um, as you traveled around the board, do you remember how you used to pick up all these different sorts of status symbols? Uh, marriage, children, careers, pay rises, mortgages, um, luxury yachts, holidays in the Caribbean. Now, our culture lifts people up or puts people down depending on the status symbols that they have. But the gospel is the great leveler. Every person stands before Christ on exactly the same terms and conditions. Jesus shed his blood to rescue us from slavery to sin and death. And so we belong to him. He's our Lord. And so we can say that this first lesson must be true. God's salvation call should transform what we think about our status. And so if that is true about our ethnicity or our social standing, the same is true of our marital status, as Paul is about to explain, verse 25. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord. But I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. Well, for much of the rest of this chapter, Paul addresses um, men in Corinth who are considering marriage. And the virgins he lists here are the women that they may or may not marry. Now, the fact that he mostly addresses men isn't sexist, it simply reflects the culture he lives in, that they took the lead on these issues in those days. And so this teaching is for all of us, regarding of, regardless of whether we're a man or a woman. Now, just as we learned earlier, becoming a Christian doesn't mean you must suddenly make dramatic changes to your life. It is perfectly good for the Christian man in Corinth to get married to his fiancée, or to remain single if he's not um, yet engaged. Neither changes their, their standing before God. 
So a bit like he said earlier about circumcision, Paul could have said marriage is nothing and singleness is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. But he leaves us to make that connection in our own mind and he concludes with a similar idea of verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. And I want, uh, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life and I want to spare you this. Well, again, if some in the church in Corinth are saying that marriage is sinful, Paul reassures them that it's not. Singleness isn't more spiritual than marriage. That singleness may be a better option for some, he says. Because in a life that's marked by suffering, and uh, perhaps that crisis he talks about in verse 26, um, sorry, not verse 26, is, um, yeah, verse 26, it was a famine that was happening in the city. Uh, quite a lot of scholars think that might be the case. If that's the case, then, then marriage often adds to those troubles of life. Uh, one rabbi uh, wittily put it like this. A young man is like a colt that whinnies. He paces up and down. He grooms himself with care. This is because he is looking for a wife. But once married, he resembles an ass, quite loaded down with burdens. Now, that might not be exactly how you would describe your marriage, um, but perhaps, or, or your husband's, but perhaps it helps us get a sense of what Paul is talking about. Marriage is no bed of roses. It's not heaven on earth. See, too often our world presents a, a Hollywood ideal that being in a relationship is, is good and being single is bad. But the Bible is much more honest about life than that. And so it says, don't let your worldly status become the single most thing, important thing about yourself. God's call to save us is far, far more important. So whether we're married or single, we can, we can ask God today to, to allow this big theological truth to transform the way we think about this area of life, but actually about all of life. Well, God's call to save someone isn't the only theological truth that should change the way we think about marriage and singleness. Because the gospel has also changed the nature of time. And that also must change the way we think about life. So secondly, the temporariness of time means that singleness can be a unique opportunity to serve the Lord. Verse 29 to 35. Verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters is that the time is short. Verse 31, this world in its present form is passing away. Well, who knows whether Freedom Day will happen on 21st of June. But in fact, who knows what life will be like in six months' time or six years' time. One of the things this last year has taught us is that our experience of time has changed. Our time has been divided up by the government into these week-long or month-long chunks with a whole host of different rules or priorities for life. And I think that is the same sort of idea that Paul is portraying in this, this highly poetic paragraph, verses 29 to 31. Marriage, times of sadness, joy, going to the shops, business opportunities, all those fundamental things of life, Paul says are actually just like the ever-changing props and scenery on the West End stage. It's put up or taken down. But the difference, the big difference between big picture time and uh, 21st June type time 
is that as Christian people, we know exactly what is happening in the future. And it's not a human government that has changed the nature of time. It is the Lord himself who has changed what time is all about. Because one day Jesus will return to remake this fallen world. And so in the meantime, living with his priorities is the only thing that actually makes true sense. Which is why Paul can say to the Corinthians and to us, singleness can be a unique opportunity to serve the Lord. Verse 32 to 35. I would like you to be free from concern. And then verse 35. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Between those verses at the beginning and end of that paragraph, Paul speaks to men and women, simply making the point that the single life is a more simple life. As Ruth said, honestly, in her interview earlier, it allows for focus and flexibility. Or as the writer Ed Shaw, who she spoke about, says in his excellent book, The Plausibility Problem, he says, it is comparatively easy for me to listen and talk to God as I read my Bible and pray. My married friends have to negotiate this time with at least one other person. I'm also able to give much more time, energy, and money than they are to the ministry, Christian ministry to which God has called me. They have to press, balance numerous other calls against these precious things. So it may be that this morning you're a single person, and more often than not, you see singleness as a bad thing. Not as a good thing, as, as Paul describes it here. Perhaps your singleness is something you tolerate or even grieve over. Maybe it is a weight upon your shoulders or a pain within your heart. Maybe you look at it and think, maybe this is just a temporary waiting room for marriage. And maybe you think, this is a sentence I'm going to have to serve the whole of my life and I don't want to serve it. Well, strikingly, the word for restrict in verse 35 is actually the word for noose. Paul says to them, I am not throwing a noose around your neck. Singleness to you may sometimes feel like a bitter medicine. But the Lord tells us it can present a unique opportunity to do the very good thing of serving him in a wholehearted and devoted way. Well, I wonder how we could take this lesson to heart this morning if we're married. Certainly not by downplaying the pain or hard heartache that our single friends might feel, nor by taking advantage of their singleness but maybe by encouraging them with lots and lots of love to make the most of the opportunities their singleness might give them. And maybe by celebrating with them sensitively, not crassly, over the freedom that they have, which we don't, to serve the Lord in unique ways. And if you're a single person this morning, I'm not going to presume to tell you how to apply this lesson to your life. But I do want to encourage you to trust that God is good as his word says elsewhere, every good and perfect gift comes down from him, including the gift of singleness. You see, surely we downplay Jesus' humanity if we assume that he never thought about how nice it would be to settle down with a wife and two kids. And yet he lived that perfect life of undivided devotion to his father to serve you and me. So might I just encourage you to consider how might you use your singleness that the Lord has given you at the moment to serve him.
Well, so far, Paul has based his answers to these big matters on two big theological issues. Remember what they are? The, the calling to save us and the shortness of the time. And then as he approaches the end of the chapter, he applies these big principles to two practical scenarios. And that's where we're going to finish. Thirdly, decisions about marriage and singleness should be personal and wise. Well, verse 36 to 38, the, the first scenario, is in a sense a kind of worked example of that principle he laid down in verses 27 to 28. The engaged Christian man, in this case, is free to make a personal decision about whether to get married or whether to break off the engagement. He just needs to consider what's wise in his own situation. So on the one hand, verse 36, if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning, they should get married. Well, there's no suggestion here that this couple are sleeping together, otherwise Paul would have rebuked them. But Paul acknowledges this, that, that a person's sex drive can be a powerful thing. And so he advocates, in the light of that, that marriage is a good thing. In fact, he, he's echoing something he said earlier in the chapter. So just glance back to verse 9. He says in verse 9, If they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, apologies. A few weeks ago, I, I skimmed over this verse, and I don't think I, I handled it very well. So let me just... Uh, allude to this verse here as well. I think the point in both verse 9 and verse 36 is that a Christian needs to know themselves well. Some of the Corinthians, the, whether single verse 9 or engaged verse 36, had clearly fallen for this kind of super spiritual view of singleness. But some of them were, were pretty keen to have sex too. And Paul says that that keenness is a pretty good sign that singleness isn't for them. Well, how can we apply that to ourselves? Especially to the person who is single and struggles with unwanted singleness and struggles with a powerful desire to have sex. For a start, let's not imagine that God is giving us an impossible or unreasonable command. It is not as, as if God is saying to the Christian person like that, go and get married. Oh, and I haven't put the right person in your life, so that's impossible. Get tough. Of course, our Father does not test us beyond what we can bear. But he will correct us if we elevate any status in life, including singleness, to some sort of super spiritual ideal. Perhaps for some today, as for some in Corinth, God's word is get married if you can. It is for your good. But at the same time to others, he might say, make the most of the opportunity I've given you to be single, because that is for your good too. Verse 37. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Now, I think we can assume that Paul is not in favor of men picking up and then dropping women at will. Uh, nor is he saying that breaking an engagement is morally better than going through with it. He's simply reiterating that singleness is not a curse, but a gift from God. And so just as the slave, do you remember the slave earlier, could seize the opportunity to be free, he didn't have to remain in his slavery if he had the opportunity to get free, so the engaged person might seize the opportunity of their singleness, as long as it's not going to wrong his or her fiancé, to make a personal and wise decision to serve the Lord. 
So Paul addresses the, the kind of man in verse 36, 38, but what of a single woman? Is there any divine wisdom for her? Well, verse 39. And as I've, these work both ways, but in this instance, he's addressing a, a, a Christian woman. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. Well, perhaps Paul spoke to the, the widows in Corinth because they had kind of more control over their life choices than a woman who'd never married. But the important point, I think, is that he gives no binding commands. She's free to make a personal decision. And yet that decision, Paul says, must be wise. Verse 39, she must belong to the Lord. So I think the question in my mind must be, is it sinful for a Christian to marry a non-Christian? Or is it simply unwise? Well, verse 39, Paul literally says, only in the Lord. So our translators have put the word must there. Paul says only in the Lord. So strictly speaking, this isn't a command. But it does seem very clear that marrying an unbeliever is seriously unwise. Just consider what we've learned about how marriage brings trouble into life through this chapter. Why add to that trouble? By marrying someone who isn't called to salvation and isn't ready for Jesus to return. And let's remember, too, how James, in his letter, defines sin elsewhere. He says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So marrying another believer is a piece of wisdom the single Christian would be foolish to ignore. But there is another important factor they should bear in mind, too. Verse 40. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. Once again, Paul says that singleness is not a waiting room for marriage. It is a place of unique opportunity to serve the Lord. And so if you're single today, can I encourage you to listen to God's wisdom about these matters and ask him to help you make good and wise decisions about the way you feel and about the things you do. And if you're married, can we do what we can to walk alongside our single sisters and brothers? not pretending that our marriages are kind of heaven on earth, not speaking to our single Christian friends as if they're somehow half a Christian, but helping them as far as we can with some sensitivity and kindness and love to make their own personal and wise decisions as and when they need to make them. Well, how do you finish a sermon on a subject like this? Perhaps a good way to finish it is to take a glimpse at the world that is to come. Because Paul says, this world in its present form is passing away. What will that world look like? Revelation 21 verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You see, there will, we will not wear wedding rings in heaven. There will be no hen nights or stag parties or wedding cake. We will be the bride of Christ. And so whether we are a man or a woman, the Lord Jesus will look upon us on that day as the most beautiful people he has ever seen. God has called us and saved us. And the time is short. There really isn't very long until we sit down at that wedding party, which will be the best party ever. 
And so we can celebrate the gift of singleness in this life because in a sense we will all be single in the world to come. And yet, in another sense, we'll all be married. Married to Christ. And that is the status that really matters. That this world cannot touch and that which will last forever.